0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, so you can go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles. If I were to ask you, what is the essential ingredient of a healthy marriage, what might come to your mind? Uh, There's several engaged couples in our church, a handful, so it may perk their ears up. Uh, I, was, I read an article this week, asked this question, and it listed five in ascending order, so from five to one, number five. It said it was effective communication. Number four, trust and honesty. Number three, intimacy. Number two, friendship. And number one, love and commitment, which seems like two things, so it seems like they cheated there for number one. That's beside the point. Uh, if you're married or if you're engaged or if you would like to be married one day, uh, it, you would do well to try to figure out like what is the essential ingredient to a healthy marriage. What is the thing above all other things that I need to pursue? And then you would be wise to pursue it so that you could have a healthy marriage. In the same way, As Christians, we are called to be attentive to the central thing, like the the most essential element of our faith, the thing that is the most important. So what is it? Is it love and good deeds? Is it obedience to the teachings of Jesus? Is it his birth, his life and ministry, his resurrection? From this story in Mark 14, we see that the death of Jesus is the center of the Christian faith. It is the most essential ingredient, without which nothing else matters. How do we know that? And why does it matter actually for us? Like, what does it change in our lives if we believe that? And then what will happen to us if we live accordingly? That's what we're going to see today from Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. When they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So they started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we have uh, followed Jesus and his disciples into Jerusalem. And it's Passover week. And as soon as he got there, he entered the temple and he, he entered into conflict with the religious leaders. And, and when he left a couple weeks ago, we saw that he announced on his way out, not only the end of sort of the temple system of religion and, and the authorities over the temple, but actually the, the literal end of the temple itself. And this conflict that he got into was so explosive That it reinvigorated the religious establishment in their desire to put Jesus to death. They not only hated him, but they viewed him as a threat. They saw that lots of the crowds, the people in Jerusalem, were listening to Jesus. And so they saw him as a threat to their authority. And so they wanted to put him to death. And so in Mark's introduction to this little section we're reading today, he tells us that they're, they're, they're proactively looking for a way to kill him. And at the end of the section, that way to kill Jesus comes to them in the form of Judas Iscariot. For whatever reason, this event pushed Judas Judas over the edge. And at the end of it, he goes to the religious leaders and agrees to hand Jesus over to them for, we read in another gospel, 30 pieces of silver, which was the price for a slave. The section then is, is bookended by comments on the death of Jesus. On the front end, the conflict is so explosive that the religious leaders are looking for a way to kill Jesus. On the back end, we're told that that way appears to them. And those bookends should tell us that this section in the middle is chiefly about the impending death of Jesus. Specifically, this section is about the fact that this woman, who is unnamed in Mark's account of the story, was rightly attentive to the death of Jesus, even when his disciples were not. Jesus is eating in the home of Simon the leper, a little detail that Mark includes. Uh, Simon almost assuredly was not still a leper when this took place, or he wouldn't have been able to live in his own home, but it probably is included as a detail, maybe to imply that he was formerly a leper who Jesus has healed and now follows his ministry. And one of the dinner attendees there, a woman, brings in this jar of very expensive perfume. We're told it could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's like a year's worth of wages for a a common worker. So this is like crazy expensive stuff. Uh, It's made with pure nard, which I learned this week. Last week I told you I had no idea what that was. Uh, It's basically like a really valuable essential oil. Uh, And she breaks the jar, and she douses Jesus with it, pouring it over his head. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this woman's name, but John's account of the same story does. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, all three of them good friends with Jesus and evidently close companions in his ministry. John also tells us that she poured the oil on Jesus' feet and dried them with her hair. So as one scholar points out, Jesus was not so much anointed as he was drenched with this oil, which is a reality that he draws out in verse 8 by saying, She has anointed my body for burial. And this immediately sets the disciples complaining. Uh, This passage, again, doesn't say that it's the disciples, but piecing together sort of context clues and the accounts of the story in other Gospels, we know that that's who it was complaining. And verse 4 says they were expressing indignation to one another. You can almost hear them, can't you? Uh, It's funny, some people think that the disciples made up the accounts in the Gospels to try to make Jesus look good. But these guys were leaders in the early church. If they made up the accounts in the Gospels, you would think that at least they would make themselves look good. But over and over again, they look like fools. Uh, And here, they look like jerks. You can just hear the arrogance. You can hear the tinge of misogyny. Are you kidding me? What's she doing? Look at this emotional woman wasting all this money. The end of verse 5 says they began to scold her. It's interesting, this isn't the first time in the Bible that Mary is scolded. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is invited into her home and her sister Martha's home. And they're hosting a dinner for him and others. And Martha is busy working hard to make preparations, to get the house uh, clean, to get the cooking done. And, and Mary, Luke says, is seated at the Lord's feet, listening to him. And Martha gets upset and she tells Jesus to rebuke her sister and, and you know, tell her to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. Mary understood that prepping the house for dinner was an important thing that somebody had to do, but she also understood that listening to Jesus was the most important thing she could be doing. And just as Jesus took her side against Martha, he takes her side against the disciples. They rebuke her, and he rebukes them. He says, Leave her alone, get off her case. It's as if he says, disciples, disciples, you're worried about many things, like giving to the poor, and that's a good thing. But right now, even that good thing can wait. There's something more important. I'm about to die, and Mary knows it. And she's anointed my body for burial. Just as an aside, sometimes because the Bible's teaching on gender differentiation and gender roles is so unpopular in our cultural context, people will say that that Christianity is inherently oppressive to women, that it's a, a religion for men. What does Jesus say to that? Here, he not only defends this woman from the men picking on her, but he praises her and honors her, and he says that what she has done will be told everywhere the gospel is preached. And this comes right on the heels of the widow in the temple treasury who was invisible to everybody But Jesus, in whom he said gave more with her two coins than all the rich people put together. Jesus values and honors women. That's not to say that every church, every Christian institution has done that. But it is to say that where Christians, where churches mistreat or don't honor or value women, they do so in spite of both their Lord and their scriptures and not because of their Lord or their scriptures. Now, this is worth addressing quickly. Jesus here is not saying to care, to, not saying that we should not care about the poor. Some people have misunderstood him here to be saying that caring for the poor is unimportant, but that's not at all what he's saying. Jesus cared for the poor in his ministry. Uh, the Old Testament makes it clear that God particularly cares about the poor. The Old Testament law gives provisions uh, for taking care of the poor. And the New Testament tells us to care for the poor. So Jesus is not saying don't care about the poor. He's saying, guys, right now, You are operating as if the regular business of my ministry is just going to continue. As if we're just going to keep going from place to place, teaching a little, healing some folks, doing some good deeds. But that's not what's about to happen. I'm about to die. That's what I came to do. I've been telling you that over and over again, but you still don't get it. And Mary does. The death of Christ that's about to happen in Mark is the most important thing, and it still is. 2,000 years later, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the center of Christianity. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. And Mary here is a model for discipleship, for a way of, of devoting oneself to Jesus that isn't primarily about his teaching, that isn't primarily about his ethical commands. It isn't primarily about his miracles and his healings. Although, of course, all those things are important. But it is primarily about his death. On the cross. Now, to say that the cross of Christ and not his teaching, not his life, not his ministry, not his miracles is the central thing, the most important thing, is a big statement and it deserves some backing up. Uh, so I want to spend the next several minutes asking and answering the question how do we know that the death of Christ is the center of Christianity? And then I want to ask why that matters for us. So, first, how do we know? Uh, four reasons. First, because the church has believed it for 2,000 years. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, talks about the centrality of the symbol of the cross in early Christianity. And he points out that early Christians might have chosen any number of symbols to represent their faith. They could have chosen the manger in which Jesus was laid after he was born. They could have chosen the boat from which he taught in Galilee to represent his teaching. They could have chosen the empty tomb to represent his resurrection but instead, he writes, the chosen symbol came to be a simple cross. They wish to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus, neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign nor his gift of the Spirit, but his death and crucifixion. We see that in the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest common confessions of faith shared by Christians. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. There is, if you notice, nothing about the life of Jesus between his birth and his trial and crucifixion in the Apostles' Creed. Does that mean that the life of Jesus wasn't important? No. It does mean that central to this reality is the death of Jesus. Thomas Akempis, a medieval Catholic spiritual writer, wrote of the centrality of the cross. He said, In the cross is salvation. In the cross is life. In the cross is protection against our enemies. In the cross is infusion of heavenly sweetness. In the cross is excellence of virtue. In the cross is perfection of holiness. There is no salvation of soul, nor hope of eternal life, save in the cross." Even today, uh, that centrality remains intact for Christians across various denominational uh, and and theological traditions. Fleming Rutledge, who is an Anglican priest with whom I actually disagree a great deal about many things, has, has nonetheless written this magnum opus on the crucifixion of Christ. and She says, "...the crucifixion is the touchstone of Christian authenticity." The unique feature by which everything else, including the resurrection, is given its true significance. Without the cross as the center of the Christian proclamation, the Jesus story can be treated as just another story about a charismatic spiritual figure. It is the crucifixion that marks out Christianity as something definitively different In the history of religion, the crucifixion, she says, is the most important historical event that has ever happened. It isn't just Christians also who recognize the centrality of the cross to Christianity. Muslims uh, reject the Gospels and the stories of Jesus in large part because they find the cross so offensive. They believe that Jesus was a great prophet sent from God, but they cannot believe that God would allow such a great prophet to die such a dishonorable death. On a cross, Frederick Nietzsche, one of history's most famous opponents of Christianity, recognized the centrality of the cross, and he found it repulsive. He referred to that ghastly paradox of God on the cross, the mystery of an unimaginable ultimate cruelty and self-crucifixion of God for the salvation of man. Even Nietzsche, who found the cross to be repulsive, at least recognized that it was the center of the Christian faith. A few years ago, I was uh, I was baking some cookies to take to some friend's house for dinner, and it was a new recipe that I was excited to try. And I got the cookie dough ready, and I formed the little balls of dough, and I put them in the oven. And I you know saved a little dough to taste, and I tasted and thought this is really good, but it's really sweet. And like five minutes in, I turned on the light in the oven to check, as you do. And there was like this little butter ball in the middle with this like soupy pancake stuff just leaking out all over. The pan, and I, I looked around the counter and thought, what did I do? And I realized that instead of putting flour in the dough, I had used the powdered sugar that I got for the icing. The cookies were missing, arguably, the central ingredient in cookies flour. And when they were, things got wonky. They didn't turn out right. And of course, there have been times in church history where large swaths of the church have let their vision drift from the centrality of the cross. They've they've left the flour out of the cookie, so to speak. And what has happened? Well, things have gotten wonky. In the 14th and 15th centuries, the centrality of the gospel and the cross for the total forgiveness of sins was beginning to be obscured by the Roman Catholic Church. And the result was this mixture of legalism and superstition that resulted in this large-scale oppression of people who just wanted to be faithful of God but didn't know how. And Martin Luther and other Protestant reformers helped reclaim the centrality of the cross. Luther was known for repeating these little phrases like, The cross puts everything to the test, and the cross alone is our theology. Again, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, in America and, and in Europe, there was this renewed zeal for the social implications of the gospel. Uh, this renewed zeal of of the importance of caring for the poor and needy, and that's a good thing. We would affirm that. But over time, this movement called the Social Gospel began to divorce the social implications of Christianity from the centrality of the cross. And the result was a lot of churches and Christian institutions uh, that looked no different and were teaching things that were no different and were pursuing things that were no different than lots of other people in the world who weren't even Christians. But again, a group arose to respond to them to remind the church that the key and fundamental fact in Christianity was the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. So 2,000 years of church history, even where it's needed to be redirected and corrected, has supported the centrality of the cross. The second reason we know this is center is because the New Testament epistles tell us that. The New Testament letters. uh, The Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians says that although the cross is foolishness and weakness to the world, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Nothing but the cross. Third, not just the New Testament letters, but the Gospels emphasize the centrality of the cross. The last week of Jesus' life, the week that we've been in now for a couple months in Mark, accounted for roughly 0.06% of his days on earth. If Jesus lived to be roughly 33 years old, like we think he did, uh, then then that week was 0.06% of his life. His public ministry probably lasted about three years, which means that week, uh, the last week of his life, was 0.64% of his public ministry, so less than a percent. Yet, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spend more than a third of their time talking about the last week of Jesus' life. The Gospels combined are about 65,000 words long, and nearly 22,000 of those are about his death and the events immediately surrounding his death. If you're doing the math, that means the Gospel writers placed about 60,000 times more important on the last week of Jesus' life than the rest of the weeks of his life. And about 5,000 times more importance on that week than on the other weeks in his ministry. Why would they do that? Because this week was the most important. It was, it was the week that everything else was leading up to. Some people have said the Gospels are, are accounts of the death of Jesus with long preludes. And that's essentially what they are. The fourth reason we believe the cross is the center of it all is because Jesus himself said so. Just in the Gospel of Mark, remember three times, chapters 8, 9, and 10, he has told his disciples, what? I have to die. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, and I must be killed. I must be put to death. And he even says that's why he came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to what? To give his life as a ransom for many. The centrality of the cross was clung to by 2,000 years of church history. It was taught by the New Testament letters. It was taught by the Gospels. And it was taught by Jesus himself. It is indisputably the center of Christianity. That might raise some objections. Uh, You might ask, doesn't that lead to the neglect of real, practical, here-and-now needs that people have? Uh, Doesn't that lead you to just try to save people's souls without caring for their bodies? And certainly there have been some Christians... Who have used the idea of the centrality of the cross to justify that sort of thing. We shouldn't, shouldn't shy away from that or deny it. But by far they've been the minority. And again when it's happened it's happened in spite of scripture. Again Jesus doesn't say to neglect the poor. The Bible is clear that God cares especially for the poor for widows and orphans and people on the margins. And the church has exhibited that for 2,000 years. Why do you think most of the hospitals in this country are named things like Baptists and Methodists and St. So-and-so? Because Christians have taken seriously the call to care for people in need. Why do you think Christians give a greater percentage of their income to charitable organizations and are more involved in the foster care system and adopt more children per capita than any other group in our country? Because even though the cross is at the center, they've, they've taken seriously the social implications of the gospel. We can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? To, to return to the marriage analogy that we opened with, we can pursue the things at the top of the list and still do all the other normal things that we do in a marriage. And in fact, I would argue that, that seeing and dwelling on and meditating on the generosity of Christ giving himself for us on the cross actually leads us to be more generous people who give away our time and resources and money to serve others. Other people might respond to the centrality of the cross and ask, isn't this a brutal and gruesome and violent and archaic view of God? Isn't this just like divine child abuse, God killing his son? Isn't it unjust for God to pour all of his wrath against sin on one person? While we could give a fuller answer to that question, here's what I'll say this morning. It would be. It would be all of those things if not for the fact that God himself went to the cross in Christ. This is not God picking out a random human who has to be a scapegoat for all the other humans. Nor is it God the Father just about to fly off the handle and God the Son, like Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, raises her hand and says, I volunteer as tribute. This isn't God the Father sending the Son to the cross against his will. The cross is the manifestation of the divine, eternal plan of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that plan is self-substitution. That God would enter into human flesh and go to the cross and take our place. Now, why does this matter for us? Mary, in the story we said, is, is rightly attuned to the fact that the death of Jesus is the key ingredient Christianity, but what difference does that make for us? Why does it matter? It matters, first, because the death of Jesus is the only thing that can free you from your guilt. The death of Jesus is the only thing that can free you from your guilt. You and I, in and of ourselves, are guilty before God. All people have sinned, which means we've we've transgressed God's law, we've mistreated other people we've we've acted unrighteously and unjustly and for god to be just that sin has to be punished we think that we would like a god who just forgives everybody but do you really want that do you want a god who just lets everybody off the hook if a if a human judge on earth just pardoned criminals all the time people would be outraged it would be unjust or in the same way, if God were to just forgive everybody, no consequences, he would be unjust. We are guilty, and so we deserve to be punished. But what happened on the cross? On the cross, Jesus went and took our guilt on himself. He took our punishment. We deserve to be condemned, and Jesus Christ drank the cup of our condemnation empty. So that the Apostle Paul can write in Romans 8, there is No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know how radically freeing that is? No condemnation. You might feel condemned every single day. You might feel condemned by others. You might wake up and feel condemned by a boss or a parent or a friend or a spouse. Perhaps more likely you wake up every day and feel condemned by yourself. You feel guilty that you're not doing as well as you think you should. You're not uh, kind enough to other people. You're not good enough at your job. You're not, you know, compelling enough as a friend or, or whatever. The gospel comes in and responds to that sense of condemnation and says, here's the deal. At the end of the day, those people you feel condemned by have no authority over you. They're not your judge. And frankly, what they think about you ultimately doesn't matter that much. And then the gospel says, and here's the difference in the gospel and and a lot of uh, sort of contemporary, like, therapeutic approaches that would say, hey, don't let other people condemn you. Don't feel condemned by them. Like, you speak freedom over yourself, right? You you tell yourself, I'm good, I'm, I'm innocent. Like, that. the voice from within corrects the voices from without. But the gospel comes in and says, actually, they're not the judge of you. You're not the judge of you either. Uh, you don't get to 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 say, you know, to render a verdict over your life. The gospel says there is only one person whose judgment of you ultimately matters, and that person is God. And because of the death of Jesus, he has once and for all declared you innocent, not guilty, no condemnation. The teachings of Jesus, by the way, by themselves, cannot free you from your guilt that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to obey them. Jesus says, if you, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. But, and maybe you know this from experience, like maybe you grew up in a religious home and you tried really hard to be good, but the teachings of Jesus can't free us from our guilt. For one, because they can't do anything about our past guilt. And second, we can obey them, but we can never obey them good enough to be totally free of guilt. His teachings can't free us from our guilt alone, but his death can, and if you have faith in him, it already has. Second, the death of Jesus frees you from shame. What are you ashamed about? Like, what is, what is the thing in your life that you would be horrified if other people in this room found out about? The Bible uses a, a really compelling, striking metaphor for shame that comes up over and over again. It's nakedness. In the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, we read that Adam and Eve were naked and totally unashamed. They had no shame. But then sin enters the world and, and guilt comes into the world and what follows it immediately is shame. And the first thing they do is start looking for clothes to make for themselves, to cover themselves up because they're, they're ashamed. And we empathize with this picture, right? It's a perfect picture of shame because shame is this, this sense of exposure and vulnerability, all your all your weakness and failure and imperfections just being on display for everyone when Jesus was crucified he was stripped naked we we try to euphemize it by like putting a you know a towel around him in our pictures of the cross but Jesus was was stripped naked and crucified what does that mean it means that when he died he not only took your guilt on himself he took your shame on himself Jesus took all of your shame and weakness and brokenness and vulnerability, every single embarrassing failure and mistake, and he bore it himself on the cross. And in exchange, just as he gives you his righteousness, his innocence in exchange for your guilt, he covers you. He takes your shame, your nakedness, and he covers you with himself, with his righteousness, with his wholeness, with his confidence before God, and now covered in Christ. We have nothing to be ashamed about. What's the worst thing that the world could find out about you? God already knows it. And he still loves you. Loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. The death of Jesus frees you from guilt, it frees you from shame, and it frees you from death. In his death on the cross, Christ conquered death. Death was and is both the final punishment... And the inevitable consequence of sin, of turning away from God. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. The, the separation of the soul from God in hell. And in some mysterious way, Jesus in his human nature on the cross even took that on himself and he conquered it. He defeated death such that he could say in his life, anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, will not die. Even though he dies, will live forever so how would that change things for us if we really and truly believed that death was not the final word on our lives that we were going to be raised again from the dead that our bodies and souls would be reunited and transformed and become imperishable and incorruptible what hope would that give us what freedom What confidence, how how different it would make us from the world if we thought we actually don't have to squeeze every little thing out of this life because we're going to live for a bajillion years after this one. Fourth and finally, the death of Jesus frees you for rest. It frees you from guilt, from shame, from death. It frees you for rest. The disciples in this story were ready to continue ministry as usual, going from town to town, healing, teaching, doing good works, But apart from the decisive death of Christ on the cross that objectively frees us from guilt and shame and death, what does that accomplish? Like, What does ministry, good works, apart from the death of Christ accomplish? It accomplishes exhaustion. Religion without the death of Christ will never let you rest. You'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you've been kind enough. You'll never know if you've been generous enough. And that, by the way, is the fundamental difference between the cross-centered faith of Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says, including like secular non-religions, by the way. Like we see this in sort of outrage culture in our day. Like people are exhausting themselves because you always have to be outraged about something day after day after day. Every other religion says in one way or another, you have to do good works in order to be accepted by God. You have to earn your way into his good graces. Be good so that he will love you. And Christianity comes in and says the exact opposite. It says you want to be good. You want to do good works because God has already accepted you. It says by God's grace, Jesus has already done all the earning for you. It says be good because God loves you. Now, some people might hear that and think that that it will make us morally lax or that we'll lose our urgency to do good deeds. But you know from experience that the opposite is true, right? You know if you've ever had a bad boss or a harsh parent or a spouse who's just constantly criticizing you and critiquing you, you know that that doesn't make you want to, to do better things for them. It doesn't make you want to work harder to please them. It burns you out. It exhausts you. It causes resentment to build up. But if you have a boss or a parent or a spouse who is generous and loving and gracious and compassionate, no matter what, you'll like run a thousand miles for them. You'll do anything to please them and to make them happy because of how gracious they are to you. Not so that they will love you, but because they already do love you. And that's the heart of Christianity. The death on the cross of Christ frees you for rest because in that death, we have proof that God loves us even in our sin And that he has done everything necessary to overcome our sin. The death of Jesus frees us from guilt, shame, and death. It frees us for rest. Why would we want to put anything else at the center of our faith than that? What will it mean for us if we do that, if we fix our attention, like Mary, on the death of Christ as the central thing? In the Old Testament book of Esther, uh, there's a guy named Mordecai. He's the uncle of the main character, Esther. Uh, And they're Jews living in exile under the Persian Empire. And Mordecai has this mortal enemy named Haman. Uh, Haman is a high-ranking authority in the empire. And he hates Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow down and and pay him honor and respect. And it so enrages Haman that he devises this plot to not only take out Mordecai, not only take out his family, but take out all the Jews living in exile. And so he goes to the king and he he pulls off this plot. Uh, But a few days later, the king can't sleep. And so he stays up basically reading like the log and the the record books of the kingdom, which seems like a pretty self-absorbed thing to do. But as he's reading it, he comes across this thing that he didn't know, that apparently there was a plot to kill him that was foiled by Mordecai. And he says, who is this guy Mordecai? I've got to honor him. I've got to do something good for him. And so he calls Haman, his right-hand man, into his office. And he says, Haman, tell me what I should do for the man that I want to honor. And Haman, of course, thinks that the king is talking about him. And so he goes on and on with all these lavish things, a royal garment, a horse the king has ridden, a royal crown. He says, parade him through the city and have everybody pay him respect and honor. And the king likes the idea a great deal. And he says, do that. Go and find Mordecai the Jew and do that for him. Mordecai, in a sense, had been attentive to the king's death. Right? He had heard about this plot to kill him. In this case, he prevented his death. He'd been attentive to the king's death. And even though he was horribly misunderstood and even hated by others, at just the right time, the king stepped in and honored him in front of everybody. Just like Jesus does with Mary in front of the disciples. And just like Jesus will do with us. If we rightly center the cross of Christ in our faith, guys, we will be misunderstood. People will say things like, why are you preaching about the death of Jesus Christ when there are people dying of hunger and thirst in the world? Why are you so focused about forgiveness of sins when people need help today? Why aren't you more involved in politics? Why do you insist that people believe in such a gruesome and bloody thing? And we will say, because it's the only thing that can free us from our guilt and our shame and from death and free us for rest and at the right time, The king will come. And just as the king honored Mordecai, just as Jesus honored Mary, Jesus will honor us and receive us into his kingdom.